Welcome to episode 46 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Cohen. So you all didn't hear this, you two heard this, but the audience know. On our last episode, we recorded a new intro to the first episode, basically warning people that it's just me talking and not like our normal episodes. And when I went back and listened to it, I found out that my original statement, like my first intro was not the one that I use now. It's actually different. I forget what I said exactly, but instead of saying, oh, I said, we're not sure of anything instead of where we question everything. So I said, well, we're not sure of anything, <laughs> even our name. I think they're, I think they're both valid. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's true, but uh, I enjoyed that <laughs> I apparently at some point changed that, and I didn't know that I had done that, so. Did you figure out what point you changed it? I did not. That would require me listening to, like, the intros of ten episodes to locate that. Or one, depending on if it was the next episode, right. but that was more detective work than I was going to do. I just thought it was interesting <laughs> that I thought that I had the same intro for the whole time, and I don't. <laughs> All right, so... Let's see, we got a lot of great listener questions after we asked last time for people to send us listener questions. We got three or four very thoughtful questions sent in to us relatively Yay, quickly. folks. Yes, thank you so much. We're going to try and get to all of those a reasonable amount of time. Some of you will be writing back. Some of you will do episodes for. It will just depend. Mostly on if we think that we're extra qualified to do the topic. And sort of on the related note, this question had question and a sub-question, and I think we can do both. The sub-question I think is pretty quick, so I think that's not so hard. This person did not say how they would like to be referred to if I do cite them, so I'm going to stick with anonymous listener. Folks, when you write in, if you could just tell me how you'd like to be referenced in the podcast, it saves me a lot of time and effort. It makes it a lot easier for me to use what you would like to be called rather than having to email you back. Everything that anyone's ever sent me, I've either done or responded to by an email. And in either case, knowing what to call you is very helpful. <laughs> so if you could put what you'd like, that'd be great. Their first question was, I have often said that we like to use the non-monogamous lens for looking at relationships because it's the most critical and we think provides a really useful approach even to monogamous people looking at what relationships might look like and then ask, couldn't you then extend that to an asexual lens, especially if it's a asexual non-monogamous lens to be even more critical of normative relationship models? We, we don't know that. <laughs> None of us are asexual. So I don't feel like we're qualified to give our opinions on that or see even speculate as to, you know, looking through that lens. I'm not even closely associated with someone who I know is asexual, so all I would be working on would be stereotypes if I were to talk about it. I'm so far from asexual, it's not even funny, <laughs> so I don't... Yeah. Like, I don't like yeah, it is possible we might have accidentally assembled three hypersexual right. individuals. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I guess I'm the closest as I identify as demisexual, but I'm still not asexual. Yeah, so part of it is that we just don't have that lens available to us. I think that would be a great lens. It's definitely something that I would listen to if there was a podcast that I knew off the top of my head, and I guess if there is, go ahead and send it to me, that was focused on non-monogamy ethics in an asexual space from someone that's coming from that perspective, I'd be very interested to see what that filter allows them to see that I can't see. So I think that would be a great perspective. It's just not a perspective that I happen to have access to. I mean, we can absolutely work on getting a guest host on that uh, that does have that lens and that can help us 
understand that a little better. Yeah, it's a good idea. And then also if anyone has like a specific question that you are interesting to see tackled through that lens, we could also work on doing that. But we would need to get someone on, which is going to be our response a lot of times to very specific lenses. So if you send us a question for a minority or oppressed group that we're not participating in, a lot of times we're not going to necessarily be able to deal with it as a question unless we can get someone in from that group to check us and get us that feedback to help us understand it or if one of us is one is somehow a participating member of that group. Yeah, so I think that's just more or less the upshoot. The other thing that I would potentially say is, I do think that's a very interesting lens, and I think it has a lot to tell us, and I think it's a good thing to have, like I said, like if there was a whole show on that, you could have that in addition to, to this show, and they'd both be useful, and I would listen to both. But I, th I think we're all in agreement on this, that generally, while I do believe there are people for whom polyamory may well be a orientation, that in general, polyamory is more of a, a way of engaging really relationships as a human that rejects monogamous norms that society tries to enforce and is potentially even more evolutionarily native. Not to say that it's ethically better because of that, but to say that people can relate to it. That most monogamous people I know can relate to being interested in multiple people. They can directly relate to a lot of the trials and tribulations of non-monogamous people outside of the persecution part of being non-monogamous. Mm -hmm. Whereas I do take it that asexual is a sexual orientation and therefore is something that for many people isn't going to be as relatable to apply directly to relationship advice, right? So it's a different lens, and I think the more lenses you can use to look at something, the better, which is why I said, like, I think that'd be great. But I also think it's a lens that less people would be able to relate to. Does that seem right? Mm -hmm. That said, let's look at the main question. Let's look at specifically at the ethics of post-breakup coexistence within small, and they say close-knit poly communities, but I think this could apply to any post-knit community, especially if there were toxic or abusive relationships and there are common friends as well as common commitments. And I think that's a, a problem for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I think you tend to take on commitments, friendship circles, and groups with the people you're in relationships with. If there are toxic behaviors that you need space from, or just even recovery time that you need. As I said, it used to be one of my coping skills that I no longer use, but to give myself like six months completely away from people that I had dated back when I wasn't as good emotionally at handling feelings of jealousy and post-breakup jealousy, especially if you're in the same groups, like we're in a play together or... Right. Yeah. <laughs> Or we're both on the church council or, you know, whatever it is that you're involved in. And the poly community, any poly community is tight-knit. Yeah. Because our communities are so small, they are tight-knit. So I find it incredibly hard to date inside the poly community because of the fear of fucking it up and having to deal with them on a constant basis a week later seeing them forever after <laughs> and then of course even if you date someone outside the poly community chances are very good that if it goes well for even a relatively short period of time you'll bring them into the poly community mm -hmm. because at least for me that's where most of my friendship activities happen and if they start to identify with being polyamorous, they'll want to know, oh, you're in a poly group and it's a really good group and they'll come to it. And then after a while, they'll still be in my poly community. So it lowers my, it lowers my risks only slightly. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mandy's right about that. I think most of the time when you're dating in the poly community, you're going to end up mm -hmm. in the same circles as the people that you broke up with unless they just gave up being poly afterwards. Or they moved to Albuquerque. Or you moved away. Uh, Mandy's base suggestion was to move that is going to be successful if you decide to abandon everything that you're around and move. You will not be in contact with those people. I don't recommend that necessarily. It seems like a very unhealthy coping mechanism unless you were already planning on moving. But it is a very effective method. If you feel that that's what you need to do, please do it. 
<laughs> oh yeah, if you feel so unsafe that you feel that moving to a different place is superior, then definitely you go with that feeling. I think part of the thing that I think is really important and that I've been a big advocate of in general is to address the question of if they're abusive or toxic behaviors is having poly communities that as a group focused on interpersonal and sexual ethics are actually focused on creating safer spaces and having something in place to help keep those spaces safer for everyone involved. So, you know, the the group that I'm in does use a transformative justice model that we've been building for a while, for instance. And so if you were in a situation where you felt that your partner had abusive or um, we'll say harmful behaviors, that you would have had the opportunity to, if you wanted, report those harms and get a harms intervention process rolling where we could work with them to try and teach them not to do those harms and to create appropriate modifications to the interaction with the group that would hopefully help you feel safer in that space. And that's part of the reason why we advocate for the dating rules for people in charge so that those safer spaces remain accessible to everybody inside. And so that's the first thing that I would say is if you feel like your community isn't keeping you safe from abusive members, maybe see if there is an alternate community that you can join that does. I know a lot of places have multiple poly communities, like our city has at least three different groups that I know of that are poly groups. One of the things I would say is either look at changing, not necessarily changing, because like I'm in two or three different poly communities and I go to things from all of them, but maybe lean into the communities that are more disconnected from those people if you have that option available. If you are working in those communities, like you're on the council or leadership positions, maybe especially if you're both on them, as the question seems to suggest, and you know that they're sort of harmful and abusive, as the question seems to suggest, I think you really ought to look to see if there's something that the community can do about that. And what if it's just, it's not harmful, Michael? What if it's just your regular old breakup? It's just hard for you. You just didn't, it didn't work out. But feelings are still hurt. People are still sad. I think that level of discomfort falls a lot more into the kind of work we talk about with jealousy, right? Where like, it's okay to feel jealousy and feel bad about it, but you also want to do the work to get through it to the other side. I mean, you know, obviously in the end, if going to those spaces isn't worth it, if they're there, you might want to consider backing from those spaces some. But if that's your entire social circle and it's where you feel good about life and it's where you feel good about friendship and the one issue that you have is seeing that person brings up hard emotions, dealing with those difficult emotions is a lot of what these spaces are about, right? I mean, presumably you have friends in these spaces who are willing and able to do some of that emotional labor for you if you ask them to spend time with you and help you process and understand why you're having a negative a response to seeing them because there's a lot of good work that you can do there like why are you have a negative response to seeing them? the exact same thing we say with jealousy so like with jealousy we'll say well you're probably jealous because one of your needs is not getting met or you're scared you're going to lose something right and then you have to look at why that is and do that processing work so i would say something similar here which is well, let's talk about the negative emotion that you're feeling and why you might be feeling it right now. So like, what are some of the negative emotions associated with a breakup other than jealousy? Anger. I am sad and hurt that I'm not with that person anymore. We talked about being the hurt that you're not with them anymore. That experience in a situation where there weren't any sort of harmful or abusive behaviors. Right. Because I see the hurt a lot in spaces where there were harmful or abusive behaviors. Like this person broke up with you and refused to even talk to you about why. Like seeing them as hurtful because you don't even know what happened. Like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I can see that, but you were asking for sort of not that scenario. Um, I mean, just when you're when you're sad that you're not that it didn't work out that it just didn't work out. Yeah, because shit just doesn't work sometimes. 
And I guess in this scenario, we also weren't able to transition the relationship into anything functional. Basically, it's just full dead. Maybe you're not ready to transition it into because, you know, you wanted it to work. Yeah. So like I said, in the past, I used to really enjoy the don't talk to people for six months and then start talking to them again. Because for me, my memory doesn't change and my emotional content rarely changes. So after six months, when all of the hurt feelings have settled out, I'm really excited and ready to get back to being friends. And in my experience, that never happens. The other person forgets that I existed during that time frame right. and is not interested in that. So I definitely have moved towards a model where I just sort of process, deal with, and and accept more negative emotion up front in order to maintain those connections so that they can become something later. Because I think that's the big part of it. Like you said, you're not ready to transition it. But I think if you go for, I mean, unless you talk about not ready being like a week or two weeks or something like really short, then if you push the people out of your social space entirely until you are ready, you probably won't have the same range of transitioning options available to you. Right. Because yeah. you'll have worked your way out of their life, especially for poly people, because a lot of the poly people I know, you got to get on their schedule two months in advance. <laughs> so, you know, if if you uh, walk away for six months, they probably just filled that block with somebody else who they'd now have to displace to, to let you back into that space. And they don't feel like that's appropriate because that other person didn't do anything wrong. So why are they going to tell them, oh, I need to make space again? Right. Um, Sarah, what did you say? Anger? Anger. Um, referring to my feelings about my ex and the toxic toxicity there because they're in the community that we did have communal, which was not a polyamorous community. I was not polyamorous at the time. He has been spreading a lot of toxic things about me. And I feel anger that he's being believed and I've been pushed out. But that's a very kind of very specific to my my circumstance. But however, I can imagine if you're in a space where you have to be around this person that there might be some some bitterness at the toxicity that has made an uncomfortable situation that wasn't uncomfortable before, where you feel like you have to choose. Do I hang out and do I keep this commitment and continue to um, be around our common circles or do I need to leave because I can't handle the toxicity that has been created? Yeah, that's a really hard one. But I think that's not as rare as you think it is. I see that all the time where when people break up as perspectives function, I'm not even 100% sure what a lot of times when I see that if the person who is spreading the more or less malicious content realizes that they're spreading malicious content versus thinks that they're telling their... They're just venting. Their, their experience. Yeah. They're just venting their story. Yeah. And they're just as scared of sharing the space as you are. And that doesn't make it any better. You definitely should not try and get people to not share space with other people as a general rule. But there are also scenarios like if you, you know, genuinely feel the other person was toxic in some way. And a lot of that's going to be potentially culture clash. I don't know about your experience specifically, but I know you do often date people who are not previously members of the poly community. So they might think that there's something dangerous or bad about what you do, you know, especially if it ended in their mind for some polyamorous reason, they might feel very justified in telling people like careful of that person. She doesn't care about her partners because she'll have multiple partners and, you know, stuff like that. So it's one of those things where from their perspective, you know, you have the toxic behaviors. Yeah. I don't know what the lies are in this particular case. So I don't want to justify other people's lies and I'm just looking at like sort of how they could be perceiving it. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously that's a real danger if you are dating people from the monogamous community who either were monogamous the whole time you were dating them or return to that community when they break up with you. There is a real risk if you're in shared spaces that are not polyamorous that they will use that distinction against you mm -hmm. to try and be the good guy. Yeah. You know, I really tried. I tried my 
best, and it just doesn't work. Poly- I tried polyamory, and it just doesn't work. You just can't satisfy her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. One, you know, one answer is breakups are just hard. Actual breakups are really difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the evolutionary equivalent to a breakup would have looked like. Because if you think about the evolutionary space where you're just traveling around with a band of 40 people, and the only time anyone ever changes what band they're with is very young women, pubescent crest women, like post-pubescent women, are traded between tribes when they meet sometimes, but otherwise that's your tribe for life. I really don't know exactly what a breakup looks like in that context. (laughs) I'm going to assume for now that people weren't forcing people to have sex that they didn't want to have, at least in some cases. (laughs) Or you got smacked in the head with a rock, yeah. It was a community though, right? So like... If you take it that in prehistory times, people were most likely to be multimaters, as we generally assume on the show. Mm-hmm. Then if you have three or four partners and you refuse to sleep with one of them, the other three would probably defend you against that partner's forced advances, generally speaking. And we do know that usually smaller indigenous groups of humans are incredibly fiercely egalitarian and don't take to anybody forcing anyone to do anything. So I assume that you had a fluidity to who you were sleeping with regularly that was available to you. But the breakup wouldn't be like a breakup like we think of it. The thing is, we just don't have good breakup skills because in our culture, when you break up with someone, you literally never see them again. Right. You know, the majority of everyone I ever broke up with from my monogamous days, I might have seen once or twice randomly like run into them at coffee or something Mm -hmm. and been like, oh, we should talk or get together. And we did once or twice and then did not anymore. Partly because not only don't we have good breakup skills, we don't have good continuing relationship skills. So their partners, friends, family, whatever, were very worried about you being around. And so it's one of those things like television, like obviously there was no television in the native environment. We've talked about this before, but as an evolutionarily novel thing, television is mostly addictive by virtue of movement. So if you've ever been at a bar or something with your friends and you just keep staring at TV that you don't want to watch that has no sound and no subtitles and you can't even tell what's going on, but every two seconds you realize you've lost your concentration or staring at it, that's because it keeps moving. And evolutionarily, it's really great to look at things that are moving so you don't get mauled by a tiger and or don't miss an opportunity to catch dinner. Mm -hmm. In the natural world you want to always pay attention to movement but in our world most movement is not helpful it's extraneous it's tv it's computers it's ads somebody walking by right a million people who don't matter to you wandering by you who are neither a threat nor a value to you Mm -hmm. that's a lot harder so telling people like you just don't watch television is almost impossible even though there's no real positive to tv Mm. that i can find from like a life health work balance standpoint it just sort of soaks time tv can be educated I was just thinking. TV can be educational, but most people I know don't primarily watch educational TV. I definitely watch documentaries on a regular. Obviously, you can use a tool to do something, but like television sort of writ large, I think is generally, you know... Which is funny because when you were when you were describing the uh, the breakups in the prehistoric age, I was like, I'd watch that show. <laughs> that was exactly what I was thinking. Was I, I check that out? So what I'm hearing is we should write books or shows in a polyamorous pre- prehistoric <laughs> evol- yeah. prehistoric historical fiction <laughs> setting. Because I've honestly never thought about it. Yeah, neither have like, I. I've never thought about how they dealt with 
this kind of thing, but... And you can see that, like, if you look at chimps and bonobos, right, they have that sort of scenario going on all the time, where here you have a, a chimp that maybe slept with three or four other chimps and then is no longer sleeping with one of them, and the way that the social hierarchy shifts and result and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But but it's not like they leave. They don't leave the band in response. Like, they have to engage with that person over and over again. And it's hard, and it is a skill set, and we've been taught not to do it. We've been taught to just run away from it entirely. Mm. They don't move to Albuquerque. <laughs> Yeah, they do not move to Albuquerque. For sure, that's one of the things that I noticed really early on when I became Polly is that my post-relationship skills were sorely lacking. That that was one of the reasons why I did that exactly one time and then was like, I need to stop doing that in Polly contexts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I have all these other options open to me. Friendship, acquaintanceship, cuddle buddy. There's so many ranges between intense attempting life partner to complete stranger I pretend doesn't exist, that I wasn't engaging, that I needed to engage that is emotionally hard. It was especially hard because clearly the whole reason that I liked going away for six months was because I had never developed any of those skills and I had very strong emotional negative responses to to that happening. When you when you left for six months and came back, were you like, hand out, hi, I'm Michael, let's start over? Or did you just kind of creep in and hope everybody noticed you very slowly? Well, it was individuals. It wasn't like communities. And no, it was definitely like, hey, I am now really over everything that made me sad before and would love to still be your friend again if you're still interested in that and you want to do that we can start from here if you'd like and she was like what's your name again (laughs) normally people are like yeah that'd be great and then we do coffee one time and then never really see each other again like Ah. they don't respond actively or give you enough time to really be friends that sort of thing like there's just enough space which means they really didn't want to be friends with you i mean they weren't highly motivated to be friends with you it wasn't important yeah it wasn't important to them to still be friends with you I suppose I had one really interesting conversation. I had one friend that we had had a falling out at a certain point. All this was a little bit more traumatic, but we ended up sort of starting from scratch again and being friends, quote unquote. And they said they really wanted to be my friend. And then we would go for long periods without speaking or I would message them. They wouldn't really message me back or they would have something important and not invite me or let me know what was happening, anything like that. And we were having a conversation about it and they were like, well, you were gone for so long that sometimes I just forget that you exist now that you're back. And I was like, yeah, but you have new friends that were never around at all. And you remember they exist, right? Mm-hmm. Like, wow. You're, and, you know, and they were saying, I don't have a problem with you. I just sometimes forget that you're there because you weren't there. And I was like, well, you're saying you don't have a problem. But I'm saying that if you can't remember I exist, mm-hmm. we have a relationship yeah. problem. That's a problem. <laughs> and then and then she just never like wrote me again after that. And then now sometimes randomly post positive things on the posts about my kids, which is really weird to me. They were like, I want to be in your kids group. And I was like, (laughs) post positive thumbs up or notes like that's so cute. And I'm like, we don't actually talk or know each other or interact in any way. But okay, sure. (laughs) I don't know what you get out of this, but all right. Have you guys ever had a partner come back and want to like start seeing you again yes like things didn't work out the first time and they were like hey i want to start seeing you again i want i want to try this again outside of like a on again off again scenario only once Uh, like in an actual like we're done done a while later hey maybe we should date again you said you have sarah i guess maybe mine were more on again off again experiences too i'm trying to think i'm almost certain i had one that one person that distinctly came back but i can't remember who it was or the circumstances so i i don't know yeah because i definitely 
have had like the we break up a week goes by you call me we get back together we go out for a while we break up oh no no, no. i'm talking like years ago i had this partner he and i were great and then he was having some issues with another partner and really wanted to focus on her and their mm-hmm. you know what they were starting and i was super supportive like he was a great guy and i was like yeah that's awesome like do that and but i had developed feelings for him at the time and he didn't reciprocate those feelings we remained very close friends after that but i had to kind of adjust that in my mindset that okay this guy's a friend now you know what i mean like i i have to kind of adjust the way i think about him and kind of see him through a different lens if that makes sense i understand that completely so then just recently in the last couple months he's come back to me and said hey over the last year like i've been developing feelings for you again i think i want to try again Hmm. to do this again and i'm like (laughs) i did i had feelings for him before Mm -hmm. but i've definitely kind of logic them away Right, right. It's a survival skill in and of itself to create a space to put him in where you could handle him without feeling bad about it. So now I don't even know what to do with this. Hmm. And I haven't... I haven't answered, like I haven't responded. I've responded around it. Like I I still talk to him on a fairly consistent basis. (laughs) Just haven't responded to, he wrote me this big long email and I haven't responded to the email. (laughs) We're just pretending like I never got it. How long have you had the email in your desk? I've had the hate email for about two months now. (laughs) That's a long time for him to keep talking to you and you not respond. That's pretty impressive. The frequency in which we speak has not changed from before he sent me the email to after he said, like it wasn't, we still talked uh, as friends on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. He just all of a sudden confessed these feelings to me and I told him I needed to marinate on it. Like I didn't know, I, I mean, I told him when he sent it that I didn't know what to do with it and I needed to marinate on it and that I would get back with him. And I, I have not. And I feel bad also for not fair. getting back with him, but I still don't know what I'm going to do with it. Like I've, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I, I don't know that I like him like that anymore. But if I did at one point, is that, I don't know. Yeah. And that's a hard one. So that's the question of emotional versus logical dating, which I we've talked about before where I've said that early on I had something like that with Lissa where like I thought it made sense to date her, but I wasn't really emotionally sure that it made sense to date her. And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep doing it until it feels bad at least and see how it goes. And I was really honest with her about where I was too. I wasn't just like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this and not talk to her about it. But and then it just never, you know, it just got better instead of worse. <laughs> so it's just like it never got bad. So it worked. Yeah, it worked out. <laughs> like, it's not impossible, but given that you did date already for a while, and then you sort of didn't date for a while, I feel like you pretty much have an NRE short circuit going. The normal kickoff music for a dating scenario may or may not happen. Because you can get NRE twice, and you can get NRE again for, like, a new type of relationship with someone. But also, if you've gone through the whole NRE process you're less likely in my experience to get it for the same person a second time. Right. You know, you've kind of already gone through that. So like, I've definitely seen the scenario where you have friends that you never had NRE for and you're like, oh, maybe they could be a date and then you get a bunch of NRE and like, they're so exciting. Mm -hmm. But you don't see that as often with like, I have dated you and now I don't and now I am again. Right. Because you've already gone through all of that. You know, we talked before about how difficult it might be to date people without any NRE at all because it's what we're used to. Mm -hmm. It's what you think about as being the... The butterflies and the... 
Yeah. yeah. You're not going to get you're not going to get any of that. There's a slight chance that the guy could do a lot of cool things to cultivate that like plan immaculate dates or something, but it's unlikely that that's what this partner is offering. So you're you're unlikely to have that sort of wonder recultivated for you, mm-hmm. so it's more about a pragmatic was dating him good would what I know about his the changes that he's made since then as a person who grows over time also seem like things that I would normally think are good? And am I still interested? Because obviously the concept of the friend zone is super toxic because it's used to shame women into having sex with people primarily. Right. Like most effective lies, it's based on some portion of truth, mm-hmm. which is that there does appear to be a mental thing that people generally can do, although it does seem like you know, women are better at it, of creating a space that once people are in that space, they're not sexually attractive. Right. And so if you've done that work, digging them back out of that mental space that you created for your own well-being... It's going to take work. ...is a lot of work. Yeah. And so then you have to decide if it feels like that's worth it. And again, to understand that for a long time while you're doing that work, the person's not going to feel like particularly romantically appropriate and how that makes you feel. Right. And I, I love him. I absolutely love him. I fell in love with him when we were dating. And then when I had to kind of change that type of love Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know that i can change it back now yeah so Mm -hmm. i guess that's where i'm i'm just kind of torn if that can even if it's even a possibility to do sure but it makes more sense that because i was kind of looking for nre to show up like when he said Mm -hmm. it i went oh and kind of waited for the butterflies (laughs) and i was like oh there's no butterflies well, that must mean that this can't happen, you know, like that I'm not attracted to him. I mean, he's and he's an attractive man. It's not that I'm not attracted to him. I just I don't know that I can change like like I can go in and pull that love back out of this box and put it in that box and like mold it into a different type. Yeah, that's interesting. It says lots of interesting questions, too, about the way relationships get started. We talked a lot about like if you're getting to know someone and you want there to be the possibility of dating long term, what sort of linguistic and social cues do you need to integrate to end up not getting put into a non-romantic space that you're unable to get out of that sort of thing mm-hmm. i mean and i mean it's unintentionally for the person doing it as well like because we talked about mm-hmm. absolutely you know like what it would look like to try to to try to really get to know someone before you date them and the biggest thing that we all came back with or you two mostly was that you don't know that if you got to know them completely without letting yourself have any sort of romantic interest in them, that you would then be able to create that romantic interest at a later point because of this exact thing. Right. So kind of in a conundrum. And I guess the question is, what do you think you would get out of taking him up on the change back to romantic scenario that's the thought right the whole idea of relationship transitioning is that you're trying to dial the relationship in at its most optimal rewarding for you and so like what rewards are offered and what costs are offered by that transition and then trying to decide if that's worth it to you or not right and i won't announce what that is right now (laughs) sure on on, so that he can listen to it but i just meant more i didn't i don't mean that at the moment i just mean more like that's the thing that you should be yeah i guess trying to trying to think through for yourself you know and then also you could also ask him questions about sort of his emotional maturity like interested in seeing how i would feel if we related to each other differently but I would need it to be on a trial basis the way that regular early dating is normally on a trial basis where like we go on and just a date we're just dating we're not whatever and you know we see how it feels and I make right. decisions on how it feels and if I don't end up doing it would you like you know like if I don't end up being able to do that is that okay and if not then like maybe we just it doesn't seem like it's worth the 
the risk. And like, what's the difference between, because we go on coffee dates still. Over the years, we've we've consistently gone on coffee dates. So like, what's the difference? That he just tries to kiss me at the end again? Like... Sex, probably, right? Is that the what's on the table? I mean, I guess. Is that, I mean, is that basically then that's what he's saying? Is that he just wants to start having sex with me again? Is I guess that's a good question to ask as well, right? You could say, what is it, what is it you're suggesting? What right. would this change look like? Is it, because if the, basically you're saying everything will be the same, we'll do the same amount of seeing each other, maybe a little bit more, but basically the only difference is we also sleep together and do other sexual gestures, kissing. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a wide range of traditionally considered sexual gestures that we don't always consider sexual, like hand-holding, grabbing their butt, that sort of stuff that may or may not <laughs> be sexual depending on the context and who it is and what your individual relationship looks like, but presumably it's adding a range of sexual contact that doesn't currently exist. Yeah, physicalness that's not there. Yeah. And then you should also, you know, then you would also ask, like, I guess, like, is this also talking about not the relationship escalator per se, but what are you, what's the reach of that change? Like, are we all saying, like, let's see if we would see each other more often or grow more intimate if we did the, you know, had a relationship this way instead of the way we have it currently? Because I think you got to know what it is that they're getting offered to have a desire, good decision about whether or not that's what you want. Mm hmm. And it's that whole language is so imprecise. Like you got sent a really big letter. And as far as I can tell, the most important parts of that letter, like what this person is actually suggesting were not apparently included in the letter and seeing like that's the most important part. <laughs> the, the only experience that I have with that was not really an option. It was the one that led me on my poly journey that I told you two about a few times and generally I talk about a lot where that one woman was like, well, I was lying. I do want you back, but I should have said it earlier. And now you're with this other person. And I really wish I hadn't messed this up. And I, I wish we could get back together. And I was like, well, I'm not going to break up with her. Like this new person didn't do anything wrong. So why would I break up with them when I'm in love with both of you at this point? And then my ex was like, well, you can't have us both. And thus the poly question came up. And then I was like, why not? And then the rest is history. So I don't really have to answer the, the get back together question, but also that wouldn't be a harder question for me because I don't really stop having romantic interest in people because we broke up. Sometimes I break up with people because I stopped having romantic interest in them. Mm-hmm. In which case, the answer to me is obvious. No, I don't have romantic interest in you. Right. We transitioned and I didn't want to lose him in my life because he was already a good friend. Mm-hmm. So I just, I had to rewire. I guess I just had to stomp those feelings down so it wasn't it wasn't something I was dealing with every time I hung out with him. Sure. And then over the years... They got really stomped. Yeah, they're flat. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. And maybe this is why I don't have very active exes in my life. But well, no, because most of my exes, all but like a couple, I wouldn't date again because I don't think it worked. Like there's a reason it ended. Yeah. Yeah, I've never like everyone that I've broken up with, except for maybe one person, either I broke up with them or I was like, I think I should probably break up with them. And then that change in my behavior caused them to break up with me. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the kind of experience that you're describing where like, I did like someone we broke up, even though I didn't want to, or I guess I kind of have like, there's some people that I didn't really want to break up with at the time. And they broke up with me, but the way they broke up with me made it so that I would never date them again, because I didn't feel like they treated my emotional or 
you know, our relationship with enough value to be like to be acceptable. Mm-hmm. Although maybe years later, if we could really talk about how they understand that that was, you know, inappropriate and sort of make up for all that space, I would consider it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That would be hard for me. And I felt like that when we broke up, you know, it was handled. I mean, obviously it was handled well enough for us to continue to be friends. And it and it was and it wasn't that I didn't. I mean, I guess I didn't want to break up, but I understood why, mm-hmm. you know, he he needed more resources for Mm -hmm. this other particular relationship, which I completely understood. And I didn't have any hard feelings about. It just was what it was. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's a really interesting one. And like I said, I think asking him what's on the table would be interesting. But I think if I was just theoretically in the position of there was a person that I liked so much that I had to literally stop my feelings to not behave inappropriately with them and we broke up over situational incompatibility as opposed to relationship incompatibility i think i'd at least be interested in that but that's because i also find connecting with people very rare i don't know how often you feel like you connect with people so i connect with people so rarely that i have such a high value on it that i'm mm-hmm. willing to invest an extremely large amount of energy in just checking to see if an emotional connection could work because because i have so few of them that i have the time to do that basically right whereas i know people who are much better at connecting with me or connect more readily i'm not really sure how to describe it i don't want to say it's better or worse it's a different method of connecting where they have a lot more connections so I guess, I guess that's the, the conundrum, though, is because he and I still have an emotional connection. But I think, you know, we do have the advantage in theory that if relationship transitioning does work and finding the best emotional connective level and a physically connective level for you and your partners does work, mm-hmm. then presumably the risk to trying the romantic part is potentially less. Because you're historically comfortable with dialing it back. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we would fuck up our friendship. So you're saying just why not try it? Yeah, I guess that's my that'd be my question. If you don't think it's going to fuck up your friendship and you think you're, you know, majorly mature enough to pull it back, you know that you really did connect deeply with him uh, romantically at some point and the idea of being with him sexually doesn't not disgusting and is in some way enticing then i'm not i'm not sure why you wouldn't try it other than again if your like emotional energy reserves really low right now and you feel like it would just cost you a lot yeah and i don't i honestly don't know if i have enough spoons to yeah so that's a good reason. Then you know, and then the other thing though is if you're in that scenario, you could also write back and basically say like that, like, you know, I did the thinking and here's where I'm at. I don't know if it would work. I don't know if it wouldn't. I don't think we're going to lose our relationship if I do go for it. But, you know, I don't have the emotional energy to navigate something that's that difficult right now. So mm-hmm. if that continues to be an interest from you, then at some point in the future when I have more spoons, we'll talk about it again. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put a pin in this. See where it goes. You know, and, you know, putting a pin in it and just letting it float in your subconscious for a while might also clarify some of those questions because it might either open up your interest over time or shut down your interest over time. Mm -hmm. Because I I find that when my brain flicks to the idea of being romantic or sexual with somebody, that each time it does, it's either a slight positive or a slight negative. And on a long enough timeline, it's more clear which one it is. So, like, after thousands of repetitions, I'm either like, no, I just really have no interest (laughs) in that. Like, that is... My brain is not into it. Or I'm like, you know, I don't know. That's kind of exciting. (laughs) I would like to try that out. We diverged pretty far from the original topic. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, it's a good question too, but it's also part of the topic in a sense because I do think that in poly communities, you do see a lot of breaking up and getting back together. And especially because... Your relationship isn't just a relationship. As much as obviously it's important to focus on having the relationship with the person directly, most people are not at a perfect level 
of navigating their multiple partners in the sense that we talk about like your relationship with so-and-so shouldn't affect my relationship with you you should talk to me directly and handle that directly Mm -hmm. but it also does as far as time commitments and so like the people can actually change who they are in many meaningful functional ways like if this person has a partner they see four times a week or live with and you couldn't get enough time to make it worth your while and so you've transitioned to being friends but are still interested in them and they break up with that person or like i'd like to give you two days a week like right then it's like oh well maybe so I think it is important to sort of consider the how you would make those decisions for people that you've dated before going forward. But I do also think that a lot of dating is trying to figure out if you're compatible. And if the incompatibility that comes out is just we don't have time compatibilities, that's a very different idea to go back to than if the incompatibility that comes out is we had relationship compatibility issues. I guess, anyway, so I guess where I was going, though, before we got sidetracked was just I think we just have really bad transitioning skills Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know so we have that whole relationship transitioning episode and one of the things that i had thought about a lot like i said was that my transitioning skills were terrible that my transitioning skills were basically to move to albuquerque functionally if not for real just remove myself from any space where i might have to potentially interact with that person for at least six months yeah for at least six months until by then you know then the emotional resonance had cleared out so that's the equivalent to just moving away entirely honestly i never had to deal with it by the time i was dealing with it what would happen is i had would have missed them enough that after six months i just wanted to see them in some capacity and was had all positive emotions left over you know I let your brain do what your brain does, which is it edits out bad memories, remembers the good memories, restructures my memory to create a context where I'm excited about that person and then try to be friends with them again. And their life, meanwhile, filled up, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that was obviously not great and would not have worked if I had shared spaces with them in other contexts like hobby spaces or life spaces or group spaces or shared commitment spaces or child rearing spaces. So when you do have all those shared resources, I think being able to face your sadness is a good idea. I think, you know, when I have to fight face something that's particularly bad emotionally, I definitely go out and borrow a lot of stuff from the, you know, the bigger coping skills I've learned from researching transformative justice processes to smaller stuff. I, I go make like, it's not exactly a pod, but it's like a micro pod. Like if I have a bad emotional context, I find, you know, the people that I think would be good to talk to. And I, I ask them like, do you have time and energy in the next few weeks? for me to just hit you up and go mm-hmm. I broke up with someone you know and to, and to help talk to me about it and I find you know a few people who are in a place right now where that's okay for them and we would be good for them or fine for them or good for our relationship and then you know I rely on those people and I bounce things back like it hurts when I see them in this space am I crazy or is that appropriate and you know I get good outside feedback about good reflecting basically reflecting back to me how emotional I'm being and if I'm have good coping skills or you know this feels like they were abusive but were they or do I just not like any negative emotion and now we're broken up and I don't want to see them and maybe they were and maybe they weren't but (laughs) and hard is hard nobody gets to tell you if what you're feeling is hard and if it's not hard and no yeah it's definitely not about asking if it's hard you know hopefully if they're good you know if they're doing well at their job supporting you they're validating your emotions while still giving you good reflection of sort of the objective space that your emotions are existing in. Uh, Not exactly objective, but you know, closer to objective space that your emotions are existing in. So for sure not going, no, you have no reason to be upset about this, but yeah, I can totally see how that would hurt and you'd be upset about this Mm -hmm. and how much that would suck. But also like that other person's being reasonable and they're not really trying to poison everyone in the space against you, or they are trying to poison everyone in the space against you and maybe we should do something about that or... (laughs) And of course, the partner that you are no longer with 
that broke up with you or you broke up with them or whatever doesn't get to tell you whether it's hard or not. Yes, that's obviously true. Should be obviously true. It's hard to feel it in the moment, though, for sure. Mm -hmm. They don't get to tell you how you're feeling about it. Or that you should be feeling one way or another. I feel like the answer to the if there's toxic behaviors or abuses and you're forced into spaces with them in communal spaces is just that that space should have some method for reporting people with toxic behaviors Mm -hmm. so that they can be safely managed for the community. And if it doesn't, you might want to consider either altering it so that it does or leaving that space if that's somehow impossible. Although, again, I would check with your people that you're choosing for reflecting, assuming you're following the rest of our advice and see, like, is it really toxic or is it just them telling their side of the story? And is it inappropriate? And, you know, if it's just them telling their side of the story, can you just tell your side of the story? Or are they really actually trying to turn people against you? Because I got to say, I hear the term master manipulator just (laughs) a lot. A lot. And I don't think anyone's really a master manipulator, to be honest. I don't think so either. They're very, 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 very rare. Not nearly as common as people say it. Especially not the people that you think are a master manipulator, because if they were, you wouldn't be labeling them probably. <laughs> you wouldn't like, unless know you, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless you had the following experience where, like, you didn't know someone was manipulating anything at all, and then they sort of tracked you down in, like, a closet where, like, I've controlled everything, and here's how, and no one will believe you. Maybe you met a master manipulator, but probably... If you've met a master manipulator, you just don't know. And if you think that someone's manipulating everything, but somehow you can see it and no one else can, Mm -hmm. there's a good chance that maybe they're not actually manipulating anything. Probably. Uh, And this is regular scenarios, not like a not like harmful scenarios. Like if you're experiencing significant harms or abuses, like that's a different scenario, especially if you're talking about one on one manipulation, that's much more common. Right. So like if you're dating someone and when you're alone, they're manipulating you and they're telling you no one will ever like you or I will like like again. Again, get help, find someone who can support you, get out of those harmful spaces. I mean more like if you're like, they're going around and talking to hundreds of people and just manipulating everyone so they can't see how harmful they are, but everyone thinks I'm harmful when I'm not harmful, but everyone's telling you you're harmful, like... You should at least mm-hmm. listen to that. Like, mm-hmm. also tell them the other stuff, because if you feel harm, you need to tell people, because it can so also possible that you're both doing harmful stuff. But if everyone's telling you you're harmful, it's very unlikely that everyone around you, not everyone, obviously, like, don't use that as a barrier. Like, oh, one person says I'm not, it must be good. Like, but if large groups of people are, who seem genuinely concerned with your well-being are saying that your behaviors are potentially harmful, then it's quite possible that you are the person in the equation that's harmful, as opposed to maybe the person you think is harmful, because difficult emotions can feel like harms. So people putting difficult emotions on you, even calling you on being harmful can feel like you're being harmed, but that's not necessarily what's happening. Right. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's important to take seriously the possibility that you could be harming people if, that, if you've been told that you've been harming people. But it should be in a context where you also have the capacity to take accountability for those harms, fix those harms, and then be reintegrated. It shouldn't be in the context of you've been harmful, get out. Right. Which we've mentioned that before. That's, that's our general transformative <laughs> justice yeah. position is that even if the person is being harmful, if you just throw them out of the group, they're going to harm someone else somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you close the group and move on, it's not like that person ceases to exist or ceases to be able to access other people to harm them. They just can't access right. that group. And even then, they can still, in my experience, kind of access that group. Like, even people I know that have been blocked from groups don't seem to fail to access group yeah. members under certain contexts. It's not like, an, I mean, this isn't a legal system, these these social groups. It's not like we can be like, never meet this person <laughs> again. They've been banned from your shared social group. Yeah. Okay, so let's try and do some summary point real quick because we're running out of time. And we can do the summary. Maybe that'll also help us see what we've missed. What 
what to do if you are in a small social circle with shared relationship structures and someone breaks up with you. First, check if they are have harmful or abusive behaviors and you're being forced to into unsafe spaces with them. If you're being forced into unsafe spaces through the groups and social circles you are in, appeal to the groups and social circles you are in for help. Yes. The groups and social circles should have systems to help you or be willing to help you if those are healthy groups and social circles. If your groups and social circles respond to you saying, I feel that there is an actual risk of harm and being forced into a space with someone who may have committed harms against me and they do not care you need to find different groups and social circles because those just simply aren't safe spaces yeah even if you didn't actually experience harms the fact that you felt that you experienced harms and no one was willing to help you work through those and feel safe sucks. means those are not yeah. good yeah sucks these are not good social right. circles that's not how your social group should be treating you otherwise why are you in that social group you're there presumably for support for working together agreed get new friends <laughs> or get new group. Mm -hmm. If there are no groups, make a group. A lot of really, some of the best groups came out of people that didn't feel safe or supported in their groups, taking that need to feel safe and supported and using that as the cornerstone to create a new group. Absolutely. There is always a need for more poly groups because every group has a different culture too. Like I am so supportive of anybody else making another poly Charlotte group. Like if I could help someone make another poly Charlotte group, mm -hmm. I'm in. It's not just poly groups. There's there's always a need for community groups mm -hmm. in any community. That's true too, but I was I was just saying that because the question specifically oh, okay. said like we're in a tight knit community and I don't want to lose my no. poly community. I was gonna say you know even then, but yeah yeah any group there's, there's groups you can make whatever. But this applies to any group. Like if you're in a theater group and the theater group doesn't protect people in the theater group from harms, go make another theater group that does harms mm -hmm. protection. Like right, and people will join that group. Like there's always needs for more community groups. Is there not a fight? Like if we need more community, not less community mm -hmm. so that's my my high level like there are harms and abuses there should be systems if there are not systems leave if you can't leave make something new i mean if there's nowhere to go make something new sorry not if you can't leave yeah. you can't leave assuming that there are not harms or that the harms are being addressed by the group you're in if the harms are being addressed by the group you're in you know use the group system to address those harms and that will also help you address motion around your ex if there are not harms, then honestly, it's going to be hard, but that's a skill we need to work on. You need to learn to be around people that you're transitioning out of relationships with, and you should work on your relationship transitioning skills. You can go listen to our episode on relationship transitions and try your best to negotiate as much as possible what the post-relationship transition will look like, post-romantic relationship, post-dating relationship will look like, right? So if you already know where it's going to change to, it'll be way more comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to just go, we'd like to still be friends, but that doesn't really tell you anything. Like think about how we always tell you how much you need to negotiate your mm -hmm. romantic relationships. Try and do the same thing with your post-romantic relationships. Mm, absolutely. Hey, are we going to split up friend nights? Like if we have a D&D &D group, are we both going to keep going to that or is one of us going to leave? Can we still make that level of commitments? Like maybe I still want to be your friend, but I was in three groups because you were in them and I wanted to be at all of them. One of them I really love. The other two I don't love as much. Maybe I shouldn't go to those anymore. Is there a way to, you know, bow out of them? Mm -hmm. Negotiate as much as you can. What would you like our post relationship to look mm -hmm. like? You know, I mean, I definitely negotiate that when I'm dating someone not... Not like sort of just the general interest I have in the way the relationship could be formed. Like I'm interested in maybe still cuddling. I'm interested in, you know, maybe still having non-sexual sleepovers. I'm interested in having some sexual mm -hmm. sleepovers. Like, you know, whatever that negotiation looks like. And the other person can say, well, I'm not interested in that. I am interested in this. And the more you can narrow that down, the easier that transition is going to be. Because we all like to know where we fit in someone's life. Yeah. Yes. Like, all right, I don't want to have sex with you anymore 
but I want you to still be my best friend mm-hmm. or one of my best friends or, you know, I would really like you to be like, I love talking to you about X or seeing movies with you. Can you be my movie buddy? One, we'll do movie might once a month, you know. The better negotiations you can do there, the easier that will be, and therefore the less painful it will be because you'll know what to expect. Expectation management is about 90% of pain. Well, one of the, the funny things I've been learning with my kid recently on that is, uh, so he just recently, we're, he's three and a half, figured out contests. And he, you know, I think I might have said that he had a really hard time losing the first time he lost. Aww. So I always told myself that I would be the kind of person that wouldn't let my kid beat me at things like racing. Mm-hmm. But then I also felt like it's a dick for outrunning a three-year-old. <laughs> like one of my steps is like 10 of his steps. And he's, a, you know, he just had so much fun running with me. So I just run at the same speed and then he'd get there first and declare himself the winner and just be very happy. And so I wasn't really thinking about it because it just didn't matter to me. And then one day he decided to race the dog Aww. somewhere. So he said, call, because he likes to pretend to be the dog. So he's like, okay, call us both. So I got up to the top of the stairs and called him and the dog. And of course, the dog beat him because it's a dog. <laughs> the guy's got four wheel drive and my kid can barely walk. He thinks you have treats. Yeah, yeah. If you call a command, yeah. yeah. I called the command. So it was coming as if I had treats for him while my son is trying to outrun a quadruped. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He got so mad, like he just melted down and was crying and saying, next time I'm going to tie the dog to a tree before we race and <laughs> like really horrible sort of abusive sounding, like I'll hit the dog kind of stuff. <laughs> and I was like, I was really, really, really worried. And so I went and did a bunch of research and I found out that at his age, the, it's the uncertainty that upsets them. Mm-hmm. So uh, they like to practice, like, you know, how, like they practice anything else, like they pretend to be adults. So they don't really be adults. Like. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really want to lift a bunch of stuff or do a bunch of chores, but he wants to pretend to hammer something and then yeah. it's fixed, you know? And so now we usually have pretend contests or once we declare the contest, I say, okay, are you going to win or am I going to win or are we both going to win? And like, you know, 70% of the time he chooses himself, but like 20% of the time we both win and 10% of the time he's like, it's your turn to win. Aww. And as long as he Aww. knows that's happening, that's fine. Yeah. And I think I could negotiate for a larger percentage if I needed it. Like if I felt like I needed more than that, I could probably say, I'd like to win this time. Is that okay? And he'd go, okay, you can win this time, dad. So do you explain to him then that the dog has four legs and is probably going to beat him every time. Yeah, well, we don't race with the dog anymore, yeah. Because he says, well, because he says, well, if he says, like, I want to race the dog, I'll say, well, do you want to win? And if he says yes, I'll say, well, you then we can't race the dog. Probably Because the dog isn't going to be yeah. able to understand that concept. You know, he's going to try right. and actually race you. And he will, you will lose. If you race the dog, mm-hmm. you will lose. It's a dog. He has two more feet than you do. And running is sort of his specialty. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I think, and then that's just expectation management at base, right? That we're all obviously mm-hmm. more complex than kids, but we're sort of just giant children with slightly better coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. It's still the base, yeah. So, like, yep. when you diverge from the base, you still get upset. You just now have good mechanisms for dealing with being upset. But here, the concern is that mm-hmm. it, what you're dealing with is so emotionally difficult, you need to be less upset. So, one of the ways to do that is to set as many expectations accurately as possible. And the best way to do that is negotiating with your ex and saying, okay, what can this, would this, should this look like? And how do we get there? And what roles do we play in each other's lives? And then after that, the next thing is to say, you should be working on being comfortable with appropriate grieving. So losing a relationship that you were very excited about, that went in a way that you wanted it to, and it was outside of your control, the other person decided to step away from it, like that's sad. Mm -hmm. Breaking up with someone that you thought was going to be great, but you just can't get 
the relationship to be there because you don't and you don't even sometimes you don't know why like I just can't make this relationship feel the way I need it to feel to feel good to me right now and I feel super bad because I hurt this person and I don't know why but I care about them like it's, it's really sad like I I find breaking up with people much harder than being broken up with I find it terribly saddening yeah that's okay you know it's like jealousy jealous like the experience of jealousy is okay it's about the work of processing it and understanding it and growing from it and trying to find what you can learn from it that's important like Mm -hmm. if you're sad the relationship works maybe look at what specifically you're sad about losing and see how much of that you can get back in the expectation management Mm -hmm. portion of the day (laughs) the negotiation about what you could be getting like wow i loved my conversations with them well maybe you could still have the conversations right like If they're breaking up with you, obviously, it's a little bit different. But then it's more like what you thought was on offer was not on offer. Mm -hmm. You're actually sad for your imagination, not for what was really there, which is why the relationship is ending. Right. So if the person's like, I do not want to date you for X reasons, and those things were never really on offer. The other person was mistaken about something. You were mistaken about something. There was a miscommunication. There was a misunderstanding. Someone didn't understand their own desires. There was a lack of self-understanding. There was assumptions. Mm -hmm. But what's going on is that you are hearing the truth of the state and that truth has never been different. So it was there was never a time when that was actually on offer, as it turns out, for real. You just didn't see it. Right. You didn't see it or they didn't see it. Someone didn't see it. But the revelation of the situation, like the accurate revelation of the situation, doesn't change the underlying situation. And so you're sort of mourning for your belief as opposed to for like the a real loss in the same sense. So like a... You know, mm-hmm. an actual loss is like the person died, mm-hmm. you know, then that person is like something beautiful is gone as opposed to did not exist. Yeah. But you should be comfortable with grief. Grief is appropriate. Loss, even loss of hope is a, is a real loss. Even loss of belief is a real loss. So, yeah, that's fine. You can be sad about those things. But just like grief generally, you don't let grief stop you from existing, right? So when you're dealing with grief, right. you don't not do important things in your life. And presumably, if this person is important enough, they're worth grieving over. Like, I lost a lot of really good people that I will not get back as actual friends because I wasn't willing to deal with my grief. Because I was like, I need to deal with this by just going away. And then I lost them entirely. So it hurts less, but it's not a healthier approach. And I don't know that it hurts less in like my entire lifetime of looking back and going, that person could have been my friend. I gave up on the possibility of that person being my friend because I didn't have the courage or commitment to work through my emotional emotions around this breakup. Yeah. There's a quote that I read all the time. It says something about uh, along the lines of that's a place you can visit, but don't move in. Mm. Visit grief. That's fine. It's completely healthy to visit grief, but don't unpack and move in. Yeah. Like negative emotions are very important to experience and to let them roll through you. Mm -hmm. You know, when you resist them, they just stay. Like that's how I experience them as staying is when I try and resist them because you can't. You're still having them. You're just sort of hiding from them. Or just ignore them. Yeah, or ignoring them. I've tried that. <laughs> I, I think of ignoring as a form of resistance. <laughs> Pretending they're not there at all. Mm-hmm. All right, awesome. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good step-by-step, right? From beginning to end mm-hmm. of how to handle the different options. Yeah. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. All right, cool. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Yes, thank you for your time this week. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook and share us where you can. Like, comment, subscribe, all within your safety zones. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Have a great night. Bye. Bye.